Welcome to episode number 65 of the Grab Blogger podcast. This is the podcast for helping academics change the world through online business. We're helping you by giving you the tools, the tips, the strategies, and the techniques you need to build an online business around your research experience, around your expertise, and around the change that you want to make in the world. I'm your host, Dr. Chris Cloney. In today's episode, we're talking about using a website to support your academic research. To do that, we have on the call Heather Woods from SEL in action, and that's with hyphens in between the in and the action, so SEL hyphen in hyphenaction.com, and heatherawoods.ca. Heather, I want to give you a big welcome and say thank you for coming on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me, Chris. I'm excited to be here. So I'm really excited as well. Heather is currently a PhD student in education under teaching and learning at the University of Ottawa. Um, we talked back and forth over the last number of years about her work, about uh, you know building websites online. She was actually, and I think, Heather, you can correct me if I'm, if I'm right here, I think you won a book from the Grab Blogger podcast launch party over a year ago. Is that right? I did. I won a copy of Tribes and it was very helpful in kind of thinking through kind of building on from my research and and finding kind of, you know, my audience and people that ultimately I'd like to work with down the road. So yeah, it, it was very great. Thank you so much for that. Yeah. Well, thank you for coming to the party. That was the whole point. We We launched this podcast and um, the people that came, we sort of did draws and we had, I can't even remember anymore, but competitions, we had people doing webinars and it was this big thing that was a, a lot of work to uh, organize and a really fun day. And then here Heather is over 60 weeks later, because now we're on episode 65 of the podcast, actually, um, you know, talking about where research is today. So it's kind of a, I don't know, a neat circle that we went through. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> so in this episode, we're talking about using a website to support your academic research. I'm always curious how academics are doing this, and it's part of sort of a strategy for my online business, a dust safety science that I've been implementing and, and trying to improve on, and that is this concept of becoming self-tenured. So I build an online business that's profitable, and now I'm trying to funnel that back into how do we make change in the world from a, you know, a research perspective, um, and seeing other academics using their websites as these sort of research tools is really inspirational to me, and that's why I wanted to have Heather come on and I, I was flipping through some of my old Twitter messages and came across her, this sel-in-action.com website, and saw that they were using it not just to broadcast the results of the research, which is really interesting in its own right, but they had also in the menu bar participate, so you can actually sign up to be involved in the research right there. They also had things on you know research transparency and different aspects of that, and I thought that was really interesting, so I wanted to kind of pull some of that learning that... Uh, Heather has from from creating these sort of websites to support research into this podcast episode for the audience and for myself as well. So in this episode, then we're going to talk through what is SEL and that's social and emotional learning. And we'll get Heather to, to explain that a little more. Talk about how did she get started in this field? Um, how does SEL in action support the website, support her PhD research? Also some tips for other academics that are looking to do something similar on research transparency, on sharing information about your research online. Um, and creating this type of online resource as part of your PhD. So, Heather, I think uh, uh, the best thing to do is, you know, just start at what is this topic of SEL, social and emotional learning? So um, social and emotional learning kind of focuses and encompasses uh, five core competencies. They are self-awareness. So how do we think about ourselves? How do we identify our emotions? What are our values? What are we good at? And self-management is the second one. So managing those emotions, um, coping with stress, you know, setting goals or organizational skills. So how do we manage ourselves in the world? 
the third one being social awareness. So really being able to take the perspective of others, appreciate and respect diversity in other people, um, understand the norms of uh, cultures around us. And of course, the biggest one being empathy um, and being able to relate to other people. The fourth one um, then is relationship skills. So how do we communicate and build healthy relationships? Um, and then the last one is responsible decision making. So that's our critical thinking skills, our analyzing skills, um, bringing in reflection as a piece, interconnected um, competencies. So how are we reflecting on our own behaviors, that of others? How did things go? Reflecting on things in the broader world kind of thing. Um, so that kind of encompasses uh, social emotional learning. Particularly, it's, it's targeted at kind of the, the K-12 education system. Um, but more and more research is coming out and looking at these competencies in higher ed um, and then also within organizations. So a lot of the research there has been looking at emotional intelligence, um, which has informed, obviously, social-emotional learning. Um, so it's kind of throughout the lifespan and the fact that we can develop these skills and competencies at any point in our lives and, and really work on them and, and improve our own skills. Yeah, I like that. And I, I'd kind of figured that the social awareness and the responsible decision making just went out the window after you, you left grade 12. Um, <laughs> but it's good to hear that people are working on bringing it back. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I love it. So that's kind of the overview of what is SEL then. How did you get started in this field? And where's where are you at in your research today? Uh, so I started looking at... Um, kind of a, a tangentially related topic in my undergrad. Um, I did my undergrad in psychology at Carleton University here in um, Ontario. And I was working with um, Dr. Robert Copeland and we were looking at kind of um, shy behavior and aggressive behaviors and how are teachers responding, or I believe it was ECEs at that point, so early childhood educators, how confident are they in addressing these behaviors in their classrooms? Um, and so that kind of morphed into my master's, which I completed in education at Brock. And I was looking at um, how confident are teachers uh, to address and prevent bullying behaviors. Um, so aggression, but uh, more targeted aggression. And then from that, what the questions that arose were, okay, the supports and um, broader system are really, really important here. So what are, you know, the school boards doing to support? What are the schools themselves doing to support teachers in implementing these initiatives to help students? Um, and then just kind of thinking through it, there's in bullying prevention, there's so much underlying and most of the programs themselves rely on social emotional competencies and, and fostering those within the children. So I, for my PhD here at the University of Ottawa, I've kind of taken that broader lens and zoomed out almost um, to now look at, okay, what does research policy and practice say about social emotional learning? How are they conceptualizing it? How are they enacting it? So for the um, research piece, I'm looking at how Canadian researchers conceptualize it through doing a scoping review of the literature done since 1994 when Castle kind of coined the term social emotional learning, which is the um, collaborative for academic and social emotional learning network out, over in the States. So I'm looking at all the research that's been done about implementing programs in Canadian classrooms. 
Um, and then and the second piece is where I'm talking to educators. Um, so right now we're focusing on Ontario and Alberta and talking to them about what does social emotional lear learning look like in your classroom? What are you doing? Um, which really identifies the gap that is in the research of, you know, what happens when the researchers are not involved in implementing anything. So it's just, it's the educator and expert implementing um, programs for their students. And then the last piece will be looking at the policy. So looking at the curriculum documents and how they outline social emotional learning, if they do at all. And for instance, uh, in Ontario here, we just implemented in 2019, social emotional learning is now a dominant strand of our health and physical education curriculum. But then it's, it's looking at, okay, we have this, how are that we then implementing it? So it will kind of, my dissertation will hopefully wrap up all those three pieces of research policy and practice. Yeah, I love it. And you hit it, you said a couple of key words there that I really appreciate about this type of research and that I think is important and influences such kind of change that you can put in the world. And those are around, you know, actually implementing the research. Would it be fair to say that you're taking, you know, the, the research that is done and then look how that's actually applied in practice at these institutions and schools and then also making suggestions on you know how can we implement that better over time yeah to some extent um so they're somewhat separate but like each phase but at the same time they're informing each other right so i'm not explicitly asking teachers about specific programs that are supported by the research because i want it to come up more authentically so i'm really looking at what are those practices perhaps within the research-based um, programs that are being implemented. So I'm, when they say, oh, we start with circle time, um, you know, to share our feelings, you know, what does the research say to that? And then I can kind of go back and forth um, between the two. Or if they are mentioning programs, like if they're mentioning WITS or zones of regulation, um, you know, I can then go back to the research and look at those connections and, and it's then informed even more about how they're saying it's working in their classroom. Okay. So that gives some background on your research and kind of how you got to this point in your, your PhD. How does this, this website, this SEL in action website support your, your research efforts in this area? So this comes from uh, me being perhaps a bit more of a, a pragmatist in my research, um, but also the goal of having the website really comes from kind of two main ideas, and that is education and transparency. Um, so I want to be able to, throughout the process, provide a resource that is educational um, in terms of how is research conducted, but that can be applied to research students, whether they're, you know, honors, undergrad students, or graduate students but also to the research, um, to my target population, right? Teachers may not always understand the process um, that we go through in research. Um, so it adds that transparency to both, you know, graduate students, research students, but also my research population. They can see everything as it's happening, um, which kind of breaks down those walls of like the ivory tower being kind of separate, right? Um, and, you know, a lot of times we go in um, and conduct research and then, you know, our participants don't know what happened to that, what their stories that they've shared with us. Um, I predominantly work in qualitative research now. Uh, I used to do more quantitative stuff, but, you know, 
these educators are sharing their stories with me. And I think it's important to create a dialogue um, that, you know, I'm sharing their stories publicly uh, in this case to some extent, but you know, there's an opportunity for them to kind of member check by using a website. Like if I'm coming up with preliminary findings that are way off base, they can pipe in. Um, and it kind of creates just almost like a portal for them to be able to participate throughout the research um, and see what's happening. So yeah, it's really about education, but also transparency in terms of, you know, kind of breaking down those, that fogginess around what actually happens in research. Yeah, it makes sense to me. And I think you talked a lot about the transparency and there's also this feedback, you know, they can see it in live time. It's not waiting for you two years for you to write the article and then another, we'll say seven years, but hopefully only another year to get published um, (laughs) before it sees the light of day and people can review it. You can actually get live time feedback. Is this right? Did I get it right? What else? You know, ask some important questions. You mentioned education as sort of the other pillar are you doing specific things on there to educate that target audience or, you know, what, what's that piece look like? Um, so what, some of my posts, each time I introduce a new phase or analysis method, um, I will break it down. So for instance, when I started the scoping review, there's a post just about, okay, what is a scoping review, right? Not everybody's familiar with this term. So what does it mean that I'm doing this. Um, So what I've done is kind of laid it out. So like, what is the purpose? Okay, what are the six kind of steps to a scoping review? Why are they done? What does this look like in this particular research project? Um, And so people are able to kind of see the rationale for why I'm doing that particular method. Um, And initially, we were thinking we would do interviews and focus groups for phase two. um, But there really hasn't been much interest in the focus groups, which is totally fine. Um, I'm getting really great information from um, the interviews alone. But, you know, in talking to my supervisor, we were discussing and he was mentioned, you know, we really need to clarify why are we doing both? Because they offer different things. And so, for instance, doing an interview, you know, it's a one-on-one thing. It's a conversation. Um, whereas the focus group, the researcher steps even further back um, in the conversation and it's amongst colleagues or ed- other educators, right? And so they're feeding off of each other's own stories and maybe reminding somebody of something that they've also experienced. And then it kind of snowballs a little bit in the conversation so that you get different things out of them. So we had to make sure that that was transparent in the rationale as to why we're doing these two options so that, you know, educators are informed when they participate and sign up to participate. Um, so really trying to make things as clear as possible, not only on what I'm finding, but why am I doing things the way that I'm doing based in research, but also in terms of research methodology, um, but also, you know, just in an applied sense, how does it fit into this context? Really neat. And you mentioned the the thing that got that got me when I first looked at the site, which was in the menu bar, it says participate with the exclamation mark, and you're doing these interviews. Um, can you talk a bit about how that kind of fits in? You know, I, I imagine that's kind of a valuable way to have this outreach where people are, um, when I relate to marketing, it's the difference between, you know, outbound marketing and inbound marketing, or, you know, people are coming to you and, and landing on this website to learn more and then going, hey, I can actually participate and contribute here. That's kind of cool. And then maybe you get people coming in that way. 
what's that look like for this for this project? Um, so my initial thoughts with creating this page was um, more of like a landing page to send people from like Twitter and and social media recruitment methods. But as a whole, you want your website to look whole. <laughs> you know, you want to be able to go to the homepage and see everything that's happening within the research. Um, so it's important to me to have that kind of right up front that people can participate. We're recruiting right now. There are things happening. And right now the website is designed specifically for this research project that may change down the road as my research kind of wraps up and stuff. It is something I plan to keep uh, going. Um, and we can talk about that perhaps a little bit later, but um, yeah, it's just in terms of, it's a landing page. So I can have one page where all the information is right there. Um, so on that page, they were having the short description of what is an interview? Why am I doing an interview? And what do I want to talk to you about and who can participate? Um, and then, you know, why are we doing focus groups? Why, are, what does that look like? What are we talking about? And, and highlighting that fact that, you know, I myself as the researcher may be more or less involved depending on the option that you choose. And so it's just, you know, that one spot where they can get all the information that they need um, should they choose to participate in the research project and contribute to the learning. Yeah, I love it. And I, I have some ideas on that, but I think I'm going to shelve them for the moment and maybe we'll, we'll come back to it in a sec. So you started talking with some of these tips and things. Actually, even before then, what was it your supervisor's idea to kind of create this website to support the research or was that something you kind of came up with or just how did you, you know, come to this idea that this would be a, a good thing to do? So it was an idea that I had um, based on working in other projects that had done a similar thing. And, you know, I, I had started trying to blog through my Heather A. Woods um, personal professional website, but I thought, you know, I, I don't want to merge the two. I think SEL in action is its own standalone concept and, and project, right? So it's not to say that ideas can't transfer between the two websites, but it's its own thing. So I had previously worked on, on various projects where um, we were trying to create this idea of transparency and engagement with the broader audience, right? Because now you have blog posts, you can have people commenting, and that's also part of your research, you know, because people can comment right there on whether or not your ideas are outlandish or it's almost like this built-in peer review system that's ongoing um, and, and open, right? In terms of open research. It's called the real world where people give you yeah. feedback immediately. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So I can have other researchers being like, oh, maybe this isn't the best methodology to use. Or I can have educators being be like, no, this isn't what's happening in my context. Because with qualitative research and, and quantitative, I mean, your context, you have to describe it so in depth, right? And it varies um, between, you know, you know, you out on the East Coast versus me here in Central Canada um, to Alberta out in the West, you know, those contexts are different. And so I can get an idea, potentially, if people engage with it, of, you know, this fits, this doesn't fit, um, and then engage in discussion right there on the web page. Yeah, I, it's kind of sparking a remembering of a conversation I had a number of episodes with Ava Ampson. Um, I think we were talking about science communication in general, but she's talking about some outdated models on 
on SciComm, and and one in particular being the the deficit model. If we just could just explain the science better, then people would just get it, and and things would improve. Um, it turns out it doesn't quite work that way. <laughs> but in that discussion, we sort of went to a direction of well, it really is like the deficit model is almost like the screaming yellow page with the red text headlines that want you to buy something, right? It's like here, you know, it's 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 push marketing. Here's the information. Just just it's good for you. I swear, take it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, and 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 as as educators and as academics, we we mean it generally. I think we we believe that the stuff they're putting out there is good, but the the whole model doesn't really work that well. And in in marketing, it's better to and use some keywords here: get engagement, getting people involved, starting to build community, starting to build a common narrative around which people can hang their hat on and get involved in. And in that way, you're moving from the deficit model to some other model. And I'm not well versed enough in the literature to know what that is, but I know on online marketing, that's you know the, the space of you don't see these screaming yellow headlines as much anymore. Um, you know, you see people trying to build these communities and these common narratives, and that's a lot of stuff from the books tribe book tribe that you mentioned earlier by Seth Godin. Are these um, giving the community a way to talk to each other, to talk in real time, to discuss problems, to come up with solutions? which I think can all be done under this umbrella of having a website to help with your research. So I don't know, is there anything, anything there that you you've seen from moving from this deficit model, if that's what we want to call it through to um, having a more collaborative approach? Yeah, I think I would say it's, it's a more collaborative, um, but also empowering approach, right? Like participants are now able to engage through it's, it's a participatory method, right? Almost um, participants are able to engage throughout the research process, but they're also being educated on the research methods themselves. So they can be critical with that. I almost think about it in, I'm engaging in my own, I'm engaging my own social emotional competencies through my research. I'm creating space for communication. I'm create, building those relationships and reflecting and analyzing and providing opportunity for my readers and my audience to be able to do the same um, and engage with me in a constructive conversation about what I'm finding, what I'm doing, that sort of thing. What a novel concept to actually <laughs> use the the uh, the stuff you're researching as the tool to get better research, <laughs> like using self awareness <laughs> and self management and and you know relationship skills and, and the the five competencies yeah. you talked about at the start. Um, I like that. It's kind of cool. What What are some other? So I know you've done this now with a couple of websites and a couple of projects. I've used this for supporting research. Are there some tips or things you should be keeping in mind if you're um, a researcher and you're looking to do this to help? support your academic research this and this being you know building a website to to support that i think really it's based on telling a story right and and tailoring that story to your research population or those that you want to engage with so i i'm kind of teetering on focusing on you know i would love feedback from other researchers i would like feedback from graduate students about methods on those posts if they have them, but also my research population, right? Like I'm really there to engage educators uh, across the country. So what does that look like? What, you know, I, I can't be using all these jargon terms. And I think one of the key things that I've learned from my colleagues in, in you know, looking at bullying and, and defining things is that you need to let 
those that you're speaking with define the terms and then, you know, it's their conceptualization. Um, so I would say, you know, have some background on your research, but don't be too prescriptive as you would in like, say your research proposal for your dissertation, right? L let there be some flexibility there on how you're defining things and how you're thinking about things um, for your audience. So using plain language, don't overuse jargon. You know, I talked to my grandfather now with the, this COVID context right now, uh, quite a bit over the phone and check in with him. And he's always like, oh, I read all your posts. He's like, I don't always get it though. And so that tells me, okay, I need to maybe, you know, change how I'm speaking about things to make sure that my 90-year-old grandfather can <laughs> understand what I'm talking about. Um, so, you know, get feedback from, like, I use my grandfather. My partner tells me all the time if I forget a link or <laughs> uh, if something's not super clear. So get people outside of your content, uh, research field to read these things for you um, to make sure that it's, you know, understandable and not super academic-y. <laughs> um, and just keep it simple. I mean, my posts really are between 450 words to maybe 800. I keep them nice and short um, and consumable to my audience. And, you know, um, in terms of just building that transparency, share it like you would almost a research journal. Um, oftentimes I'll just summarize what I've written in my hard notebook and, and share that. So, you know, things weren't great at the start of my research project. We totally shifted gears. Um, initially I was targeting two schools within Ontario or another province um, as case studies. And because I was not able to get recruitment, we broadened it to two provinces within the country and, and just talking to educators that way, you know, and I was transparent about that whole process and why that happened throughout, um, particularly in Ontario, when I was trying to recruit, we had uh, work to rule. So educators weren't taking on additional responsibilities or anything um, outside of their roles if it was coming from the school. So, you know, there was things that happened and I talk about those right up front in the, in the blog posts. Um, so it's, it's, you know, keeping them up to date, being tr transparent, but keeping it very simple at the same time. I maybe spend like an hour, two hours tops writing a blog post and putting together, synthesizing my, sorry, ideas. Like I said earlier, it provides that opportunity for feedback from multiple communities, whether it's your research community or your um, research population. And then I think in terms of recruitment, um, I mentioned earlier that I predominantly used Twitter. I also used Facebook. I think I tried to recruit through Instagram like once. <laughs> but you really have to put the research in to know where your audience is. Um, and I think that's true of, you know, any blog or uh, community that you're trying to build and be a part of online, you have to know where your audience is. So I've built and most of my um, research population is on Twitter. Um, academic and education Twitter is, is massive. <laughs> and it, it's a go-to place where um, teachers and educators go for resources. Um, and so I've built that up over the years and I was quite successful initially in recruiting uh, participants from Ontario and we're still working a little bit on Alberta, but 
that's been the biggest place for me to be able to recruit from. And that's just from building connections and then having, you know, my network be able to snowball um, sample and share my, my recruitment materials out. And so it's building those connections and posting regularly, but not necessarily always posting your recruitment material. I, I would say not posting it more than twice a week. I post mine about once a week. But post regularly, you know, things, I post things about social emotional learning or, you know, I share my blog post updates. So that's once a week post, once a week is recruitment. And I might sprinkle in some, um, you know, current media about social emotional learning, either in education settings, but also organizational settings, because my research has really shown me that the organization um, itself and emotional competencies and social competencies within an organization really play a role within the education system. But the more I, I'm teaching as well, social emotional competencies um, at the graduate level and, you know, looking at it at a professional level is um, fascinating to me. So I've been sharing that as well. And so it's all centered around my research topic and my interests. So I'm building that community, um, but not overwhelming my audience with recruitment posts. Yeah. And I was just say like, make it easy, you know, have a full laid out recruitment page, include those things that, um, you know, why are you doing this? Who can participate? What is it going to look like? So people can be prepared. I shared my draft of my semi-structured um, interview protocol. I shared the draft of the, um, focus group protocol, like I've shared all these documents. Um, and I think in creating these documents, um, you know, in research when we're working with individuals particularly and not just data, um, they have all these documents to read. They have informed consent. They have the information letter. They have the feedback letter, like all of these <laughs> debriefing letter. I think working with your ethics to try and make that as plain language, but also you know, less boring. <laughs> um, it would be very useful. And that's something I wish I would have put a little bit more time into. But um, my project changed a lot. And, you know, you're always in a rush in your PhD to get things through ethics and then out. <laughs> so they're, they're quite jargon heavy. Um, so I think working with, you know, ethics and your supervisor or a research team to really you know, review these documents so that they're, you know, an engaging document to read, I think, is is kind of the last thing that I would put on that. Because obviously, using a website, you do need to include that in your ethics proposal when you're conducting research, um, particularly if you're going to use the data and comments that people share on your website. Um, so I have a big disclaimer on all blog posts that, you know, you might want to use a pseudonym <laughs> um, and we'll remove any like identifying information, that sort of thing. So that, I think that would be like the biggest things is just really keep it simple, use plain language and use it reflexively and, and, you know, use that as an opportunity to get feedback on how you're thinking about your research um, process, but also findings. Yeah, I love it. And so a couple of things, that was a great, if, if somebody wants to know how to set up a, a website, to support the research, um, just rewind the last, you know, five or six minutes and, and listen to that. Cause that's, that's the way to do it. <laughs> um, yeah. My rambling, sorry. <laughs> well, no, it's, but it was good. I mean, 
I was going to do a summary, but there was a lot of points. So I, I, I'll do a short summary of it in terms of the important thing that I've seen. So you can really tell that you've spent time thinking about this as an academic, but also that you spent time as a, you know, in the world of just blogging and how do we communicate stuff to people, not necessarily academic stuff, but just communicate in general. And then out of the things that you said, I started like a, a ended up being too many stars, but I started a bunch of them, like speaking the language of your audience. Well, I mean, that's exactly what you have to do if you build a blog and if you want to, you know, sell products as part of a business or sell a service. If you're speaking your language, people don't, as Seth Godin says, people don't care about what you think or how you talk. You need to talk in the language of your audience in order for them to resonate with that and find that message. You know, finding where your audience is and going there instead of, you know, being on social media channels that they're not in. I'm trying to keep the, the, uh, the uh, more violent stuff out of here, but the Gary Vee approach of, of, you know, putting violent because the book's called Jab, 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 Right Hook. But, uh, you know, putting out helpful information, helpful information, helpful information, and then asking people to participate. If you just always ask them to participate, then, you know, you're going to get a less response. And there's a lot of good things like that that came out that I would call online communication, you know, it's like an online communication tool set. Uh, if, you're, if you have an online business, it's also the same tool set you can use to to improve your sales sequence. Um, and I'm wondering, do you guys do anything like that in your in your research where you're looking at even how many people are coming to this participate page and how many people maybe are actually converting to participating? Do you go to that level of, of granularity or, or have you done that sort of thing yet? Yeah, so I've been keeping an eye on um, my analytics for through Google Analytics and um, Twitter Analytics because that has predominantly been the main source of my recruitment. Um, I think I've exhausted my network through Facebook, <laughs> my personal network. But um, yeah, so I, I do keep an eye on those numbers just kind of week to week. And then at the end, once I'm done recruiting, I do plan on kind of, you know, digging a little bit more into that data and analyzing that piece. Um, because I, I do think it's important to show, you know, how this works as a methodology. Um, you know, in, in terms of recruiting, but also sharing ideas. And, you know, um, I can see that, you know, the scoping review page is getting lots of hits and, and where those people are coming from, that sort of thing. Right now, my top page is the recruitment page, which makes sense because I'm sharing that and um, people are curious about it, right? So... Um, well, it's that, but there's something else there. Like, I... I didn't go to that page. I went to your homepage, mm -hmm. and the first thing I wanted to do was participate. <laughs> <Just> like, <laughs> I don't even know. I don't even know what I was participating in, but it's like, oh, that is cool. I, I want. Who doesn't want to participate in something? Yeah. Um. So I I went straight to participate, and I didn't come in through. Uh, um. I just went in through your you know your Twitter profile to the website to the front. So just the way it's set up, and then if you do scroll down the homepage, it's participate again. So you're sort of getting those calls to action in multiple places. I like that you're tracking it. Um, I always say that, you know, who's who's going to win in, in make, making change in the world today? Is it is it the academic in the ivory tower? Is it the person who can do online marketing better? And it's always going to be the person who do online marketing better. So what we need is people that are willing to blur those boundaries and become a really good academic doing really good work, but also to learn these sort of things. I'm even thinking like your, that participate page you can look at the conversion rates on it. I like they use a framework. Um, and so frameworks like maybe format, um, why, what, how, what if would be a good one. Um, testimonials. I, I would 
toy around with adding some testimonials from people that have contributed already to that page, I would think that would bump up your your number of people that also want to be involved. It's like actually even a picture of, of people. And these are online marketing things that you can see them maybe as tricks in a way, but they're not actually tr- they're tricks. They're, they're good practice for getting people to communicate and be involved with projects like this. But if you just put a picture of a group of people on that page, I'm just thinking I come into the home site, the, the home page, I see participate. Who doesn't want to participate? I do. <laughs> um, I click on it. And then there's a you know a picture of a community of people. I think that would help. Yeah. That'd be a cool thing. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, there's... Yeah, that's a great idea. I, mean, I think we get this page converting at like 10%, but you may not be able to, to handle the number of interviews you have to do. <laughs> <laughs> I don't need that many participants. <laughs> it's it's kind of cool just to see. And I'm I'm spending a lot of time these days thinking about that because we have a, a whole education company um, where we're dealing with not the general public, but um, folks that are in industries, very specific industries, handling very specific materials and to prevent fire and explosion hazards. So I'm always saying, how do I educate them in a way that's actually going to get changed, foster change in their facilities? So I need to speak to them, right? Um, I, you know, I, I need to speak in their language. We need to capture their attention. I'm trying to think how did how can I improve what I'm doing, but also then can we come up with the manual for how other academics can really facilitate change with the research they're doing? So that was a, that was a pretty, I, I followed your pretty long spiel with a pretty long spiel myself, <laughs> um, <laughs> but I, it gets me excited thinking about this. Cause if like, this is a pay, this is a topic that's important. If you can get, you know, your conversion rate from 1% to five or 10% on topics that are important from sources that are um, authoritative and, you know, I want to say correct, but correct is such a bad word because <laughs> correct to who and, and all that. But sources that are making positive change in the world, I think we can do a lot of good there. So um, <laughs> anything jump out? So that was another, that was a long kind of rant on my end, but anything jump out on your, from you there? Yeah, I think it's, it's you know, and thinking through how does this change research, right? Um, I think it it really starts breaking down those walls and provides an opportunity, which um, for that interdisciplinarity, right? And in talking to your audience and looking to those experts who are in the field, you know, there's often that conception that us as researchers are out of touch because we're off in our ivory tower and whatever. Um, Just doing research, we're not doing the actual practice um, and we're not living that experience. And so I think this starts to break down that barrier and provide a space for the experts to be able to tell their stories um, and experiences in a more open way and understand where we're coming from as well. And so it just creates that openness, I think, which is, is really building that community, which you referenced a few times. Um, that I think is pivotal to, you know, our thinking about research and how we engage our community um, in it and and give each other something, give our participants something in return for, you know, helping us out. I think it's a two-way street when we structure and think about research in this way. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And I I think the academics that are going to be making big change are the ones that are willing to, to embrace these um, the new world that we're going into. And I, I put a big star beside, you just said, how does this change research? And I mean, that's the, that's the question. I think it, it's going to fundamentally change um, um, research. I think it's folks like yourself that are going ahead and putting it in practice. 
and myself as well. Um, but I'm I'm doing it outside the academy now and kind of building my own university, if you will. But folks like yourself, they're also going and doing it while you're doing your PhD. I I only wish I had started doing it when I was in the you know at the start of my PhD program instead of at the very end um, for the amount of change that that we could make. So very very exciting. So what's coming down the pipeline? What's sort of next for you and your research and um, even you know outside of the scope of your research? Yeah. So I in, in terms of uh, the research, um, you know, we're chugging away on. Um, the scoping review and um, talking with educators. And then once those kind of wrap up, I'll focus on looking at the the policy documents and sharing that experience as we go along. Uh, I'm hoping to finish up um, data collection by the end of summer because I would like to graduate eventually. We all, we all want to. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Hopefully by the end of the year, but you know, I I've, become so immersed in, you know, doing this research, but also teaching. I teach um, two graduate level courses on social emotional learning and social emotional competencies in uh, leadership. And so, you know, I'm immersed in this right now and I've become really passionate about how can we leverage social emotional competencies for not only our students, but our leaders of tomorrow. Um, whether they're in a professional setting already or their youth kind of, you know, developing these skills to be the leaders tomorrow. So it's it's something I've become quite passionate about. And I would definitely li- like to keep kind of this SEL in action going forward, even after the research project is done. Um, you know, sharing stories, sharing media posts and, and offering kind of the research perspective on things and, and keep that going, providing resources you know, one of the things that's coming out of my research and talking to educators is, you know, they're not sure where to go for like concrete, like this is a complete package resource and they're out there. So how can we make sure that those connections are being made um, and creating te- uh, resources that are created from educators themselves, um, I think is, is really important or leaders um, for the professional setting. So I, I I see this growing and I'm really excited about where it can go and just, you know, facilitating SEL through, you know, education settings, professional settings, organizations. I think it's, it changes the way we interact and, you know, in thinking that these skills are something we can always develop um, is, is so critical and, you know, change for the better um, I think is, is really Cool. So it's something I hope to keep going, um, whether it turns into, you know, a full fledged, you know, business idea or that after I'm done here, we will see. (laughs) Um, But uh, yeah, that's that's kind of what I'm thinking right now. I'm not sure where I'll I'll end up after my PhD, but, you know, stay tuned, find out. (laughs) I'm I'm just along for the ride. So (laughs) Well, I see some pretty big things coming um, down the track in your future, so I'm excited for it as well. If I'm in the space of of a leader or an educator um, and trying to understand SEL or interested in participating in a study, but even if I want to kind of connect with you on this to to understand it better, where's the best place for people to go if they're listening to this episode if they want to they want to connect with you? Yeah, for sure. So you can find me on Twitter at h a underscore woods, um, or you can do SEL in action. So SEL uh, hyphen in hyphen action.com. Um, SEL in action is also on Facebook and there, 
it's not part of the research. So that's where I'm kind of cultivating that other piece. Um, it's just, I'm sharing, you know, the research stuff as well, but also those, you know, articles and thoughts about social emotional learning resources, that sort of thing. Um, so it's all there for education settings, but also professional settings. Love it. Well, that's awesome. And I'm sure we'll, we'll be looking to get you back on the podcast once you wrap up your PhD to see where, where things end up there. That would be great. <laughs> awesome. Thanks, Heather. I really appreciate it. And have a great day ahead. Thanks so much, Chris. Have a good one. So you've been listening to myself, Dr. Chris Cloney and Heather Woods from sel-in-action.com and heatheraywoods.ca. We've been talking about web, using a website to support your academic research. As you can probably tell by my level of excitement in some parts of the episode, I think this is a critical area. And, and Heather said it best with the question, how does this change research? I think it's going to fundamentally change research. And I think the people that are going to be at the forefront of it are those that are willing to accept that this change is happening, but also to educate, get the skill sets to learn to um, do the hard work of moving from the deficit model to something that is more community inclusive. Something's more about, if if I even want to use the Seth, Seth Godin reference that we said at the start, um, building a tribe. I know that that book has has had some um, difficulties with that naming, but it, it makes sense the the concept there. And it's really about building this narrative. And and Seth had these three discussions we talked about. I think it was episode maybe two or three of the podcast. Um, I talked about this whole concept of how to cause a ruckus through building this community. And it's interesting to see this coming all the way back now to really being the crux of how I think academics and researchers can influence the, the world moving forward. So Heather gave us a lot of background. Um, we talked about SEL. What are the different parts of social emotional learning? What are the five competencies? We talked about how she's used websites in the past for research, how she's using this one today for education, for research transparency, for recruitment and getting people involved really creating this this community around the research that interacts at just a, a much faster time scale um, in live time that we just haven't seen in, in academia today. And we went through a bunch of tips. We talked about uh, you know things around not using jargon, using the same language as your audience, um, not being prescriptive, the, the grandfather test, and we'll coin that one in Heather's name, keeping it simple, making it easy to do, using the right social media channels where your audience are at, posting regularly, having a mix of, you know, the ask if you're, you're trying to get people to recruit or participate and educating and helping and providing value, make sure you have a mix there. And these are all really things that, you know, fit right in with online marketing. It's a skill set to get people to take action and to get a result. Um, and we even did a, a mini breakdown, a, a kind of quick breakdown of the, the uh, participate page and some things that maybe we can even increase the conversion rates there. So it was a really exciting episode for me. Um, I love these topics that are in my mind, really driving where we can go as academics in the world. I hope you enjoy them as well. If you do enjoy them, um, you can certainly reach out to Heather and we'll have her contact information in the show notes at grablar.com slash 65. So always we'll put together a nice transcript of this episode, um, PDF format. You can download that there as well. If you have any questions about the episode, you can go to grablar.com slash ask, A-S-K, and ask them. We'll bring Heather back on, answer them, or if you have other questions, we'll, we'll answer them about... Uh, both this topic of how to integrate research, how to integrate online business, how to make change in the world as an academic. So until next week, I want to say stay safe, um, have a have a great week ahead, and I'm really forward to continuing to bring you amazing guests and continue to talk about important topics on the Grab Blogger podcast to, to help you on your journey. Mm-hmm.